morning, Grace Point. Uh, whether you're here in the room or whether you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here. Can we thank the band? Yeah. Um, I continually come back to this idea now that if you or I are kinder, more compassionate, I almost said more good, but I'm from a holler, so I can actually get by with that, more good than your understanding of God, that probably means that our understanding of God needs to be traded in for a better one. Are you with me? If we are more compassionate than God, we have a big problem. Uh, and I just don't think that's the case. Uh, before we jump in, um, I wrote a Lent devotional with uh, Abington Press, and um, we, we have them. They're available back there if you want one before you leave. If you're online and you would like to have access, we have a download we can send you. Just send an email, and we will get that out to you right away. Last week, we started a new series called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It's based, the title's based on a book by a writer named Marcus Borg, um, and it was a book that was really pivotal to me about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. It played a big role in my faith shift and where I have ended up with my perspective on lots and lots of things, particularly Jesus. Um, we started this series last week and just asked, like, how do we know about Jesus? What are the sources, both inside the Bible, but also, interestingly, outside the Bible for the life of Jesus? And what we found out was there are sources, and it's complicated, Right? They're ancient sources, and so they're a little complicated. Today, I want to shift, and I just want to ask the question, who was the historical Jesus? What was the historical Jesus like? What was the context he lived in that shaped him? And I want to say that that adjective, historical, really, really matters. Um, because I'm talking about the Jesus who lived. I'm talking about the Jesus who lived prior to everything that came after his life. Um, in scholarship, they, they kind of differentiate pre-Easter Jesus or post-Easter Jesus, or they'll talk about the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, right? Some, something happens to Jesus with Easter that transforms people's experience of him. But before we get to all that, and eventually in this series toward the end, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll theologize a little bit about Jesus, but I just want to talk about who the historical person was. Um, and as I said last week, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the head today, and then we're going to move to the heart by the end, I hope. So um, if you need it in a nap, I'll tr I'm going to try to help you with the first part of the sermon. We'll wake you up for the end, because that's where, that's where hopefully it's going to hit us in the feels. Um, and here's the thing. The, the, why, this is why it's important to talk about the historical Jesus. Um, for all the people who are, who are talking about he gets us, um, the Jesus I grew up with, the, the picture of Jesus that was painted for me from the time I entered the world, didn't get me. Because he didn't get humanity. Like he, he was sort of human, but he walked a couple inches off the ground. He kind of floated around a little bit. Um, he, he, he didn't get us. He, he, was, he was this invader from another place, right? He, he was the prototype of Superman. He, he came from somewhere else. He really wasn't one of us. He had a, he, sort of like the Blues brother. I don't know. But he, he, he was on a mission from God. And he sort of was, you know, different, really different than we are. And so it's important to ground Jesus historically. And when we talk about Jesus, we have to ask the question, which version of Jesus? This happens all the time when I engage people online. They're like, I was like, well, that's your version of Jesus. Like, no, this is the Jesus. Yeah, your version of it. Because if there were one version of Jesus, 
And I'm not saying they were like, we're in a multiverse. Maybe we are. But I'm not saying that there were like all these Jesuses running around and they're all different. I'm saying there's this historical figure who lived and from his life, they're splintered and fractured and created like 40,000 different denominations who all point back to this historical person as being the, the source of their devotion and affection and attention. But we see Jesus very differently, right? Some people, for some people, Jesus is like a, a, a afterlife real estate agent, right? He's just trying to help you get the mansion that works for you and your budget. <laughs> like, that's what he's up to. For some people, Jesus is sort of this, well, he came the first time as this nonviolent, compassionate, kind, healing force, and that didn't work so well for him. So next time, he's coming back with a sword and with violence and wrath and vengeance. How many of you have met that Jesus before? Like, like, this is plan B. I was nice and they killed me and now I'm, it's payback time, right? That Jesus. Then there's the Jesus who loves the little children of the world until they reach the age of accountability, which we made up. <laughs> and then the moment they reach the age of accountability, he doesn't love them the same way anymore. And if they reach the age of accountability and they don't pray that right prayer and sign on to that right theological statement, they are gonna be in big, big, big trouble. Which Jesus are we talking about? So today I want to ground Jesus in his own context historically because it matters. And I want to open with this quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. This is a quote people bring up a lot. They post it a lot. It sets up this sort of black and white, either or, this is how you see Jesus or you're wrong sort of scenario. I'm just, and somebody mentioned this last week and I thought it may be good to use this as sort of the jumping off point. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. And who doesn't love a poached egg though? <laughs> All right, and they're good. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, right? This approach is, is pretty compelling on the surface, right? You either accept Jesus for who he said he was or you just leave him alone. You don't have the option. He's either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic is the way it often gets phrased. Then Lewis sets it up that if you don't agree with his interpretation of Jesus, you kind of hate Jesus, all right? You're, you, you, don't, you don't get it. I would say this is, a, this is a, a framing of the Jesus story that is grounded in bad information or, or mis incomplete information. And I'm gonna circle back to this at the end today, and I hope we can maybe begin to see it differently as we see Jesus historically. So before we jump into who Jesus was, two important historical contexts I wanna give you, um, because these two contexts shape everything. They shape who Jesus was, how he engaged in the world, what he thought, <clears throat> how he saw everything. And the first is, we often talk about how Jesus was Jewish, and that's true, but Jesus wasn't just Jewish, he was second temple Jewish, and that designation really, really matters. It's kind of like saying, you know, Brad's a Christian. Okay, but what kind of Christian is Brad? Is he Baptist? Is he Presbyterian? Is he non-denominational? Is he interdenominational, which is different than non-denominational? Is he Catholic? Is he Pentecostal? 
Is he a snake handler? Like, it kind of matters. What kind of, somebody woo for snake handling. All right. My people. Um, and even within those denominations, right, all of those, there are variations. So if Brad's a Baptist, is he an American Baptist? Is he a cooperative Baptist? By the way, the fact that they have to say they're cooperative is interesting um, when you're talking about Baptists. Is he a Southern Baptist? There, those specifics matter because even within one umbrella, you have all these different variations and perspectives and traditions of what it means to be Baptist or Presbyterian or, or you know, Pick one. They all sort of have their own unique nuances and idiosyncrasies. And so to talk about Jesus, we have to talk about the fact that he lived during a period of Jewish history known as the Second Temple Period. And here's what that means. And this is going to be a brief, but hopefully not boring, overview of what Second Temple means. The First Temple, which people call Solomon's Temple, was built by, in, in the scriptures, it's claimed to have been built by Solomon, David's son. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586-587 BCE. At that time, uh, some of the best and brightest uh, who, who lived in the land of Judah, is what it was called at the time, were taken and they were exiled. They were deported, exiled, exiled from home to Babylon, where they came in contact with all sorts of other different perspectives on religion and culture and all that sort of thing. So they're taken from their land and they're placed somewhere else. And that experience for them lasted until the year 538 BCE. Now, why did, it, why did it end? Well, in the year 539, a group called the Persians, which was the growing empire in the world, they defeated the Babylonians. And the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, who, by the way, at one point, we're going to talk about this later, but at one point in the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Isaiah was called Messiah, Cyrus the Great decides he's going to allow the, the Jews to return home from Babylon and rebuild their temple and reorganize their society. They're still under Persian rule, but he has, this, he has a more lenient policy on other religions and he lets them go home. And when they go home and they build this temple or, or begin to build the temple, it begins this period called Second Temple Judaism. And what's really fascinating about it is there was all sorts of theological changes and innovations that began to happen partly because they had bumped into contact with another culture, right? So what most people don't understand is this idea of angels and demons like we have and see in the New Testament did not exist in Judaism before the exile. It just didn't. The whole idea of, of an evil force that is sort of almost equal with God, but not quite, didn't exist before they went into the exile. The Satan in the Hebrew scriptures is not like the big bad. The Satan in the Hebrew scriptures actually works for God as a prosecuting attorney or tattletale. Depends on how you want to frame him, but that's, that's the figure of the Satan in the Hebrew scriptures. And something else happened a few hundred years later, and that is around the year 160, um, the Greeks took over and instituted this policy that said, everybody needs to be Greek. You got to think Greek, act Greek, speak Greek, worship Greek, eat Greek. I, that's a, who doesn't love to eat Greek food, right? Like you, you got to do all these things and we're going to shift the culture a bit. And so there was this rebellion among the, the Jews and what happened was they started to be martyred. There were people being killed because they wouldn't recant their faith. They, they wouldn't break the law. They wouldn't do what they were being compelled to do. And there are, there are stunning scenes in, in the, book of, the books of Maccabees where these, these faithful people are being tortured and executed because they refused to bow down to the empire. It's what the book of Daniel is actually about, by the way. It's about that period of history. It's written as if it were in Babylon, but it's about that period of history. And this idea of resurrection, of afterlife, 
emerged in this period of Second Temple Judaism. If you were to talk to somebody before that and ask them what happens when they die, they would just say, you go to Sheol, you go to the grave. It's, just, it's, it's close to Hades in, in the Greek mythology, but it's just sort of like, it's where you go. You don't have, you're not pers- you don't have a person, you don't have anything. It's just where you, you just rest with your ancestors. It's where you go. And, and in the face of martyrdom, they shift their theology. By the way, do you see how like, when people are talking today about theological shifts, like, we're not making stuff up. The, in the tradition that we emerged from for thousands of years, it's been one innovation and one shift after another. When, it, it, when interacting with modern experience, contemporary experience, um, beginning to go back to the scriptures and reimagine them and then do something different, right? It's all throughout the tradition. So here are three things that are really central. Uh, and, and this is, a, this is a way, I, we could talk about this for days, right? But three things that are pretty pertinent to the Jesus story that happened during this period. One is that the Jewish people became monotheistic. There's this idea that throughout the entire Bible that they were monotheistic. That, that's because a good chunk of what we call the first five books of the Bible was put together during this period of time. Maybe some of it was written earlier, but it was put together as a collection during this time. But this is where monotheism began. Before that, um, we have evidence that people who were Jewish living in Palestine in the period of the kings were worshiping other gods. We actually have evidence that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had a consort, a wife of sorts, named Asherah. Here's how you know that it was a problem. They talk about her a lot in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, she's the source of a lot of consternation from, from people who are wanting to be more faithful to what they see as, as monotheism. So this is where monotheism begins. I bring this up to say this, and this will be maybe the hardest thing for some of us to hear during this entire sermon. Back to C.S. Lewis's point, you you have to believe Jesus' claim to be God. We have very little evidence that the historical Jesus would have ever made that claim for himself. Now, we have evidence in, in the Gospel of John is where some of those claims pop up, which was written quite a bit later than Jesus's life. Um, And the idea that for monotheistic Jews, that this one guy who, for some reason, he had blonde hair, blue eyes, only guy in the Middle East, blonde hair, blue eyes, shows up wearing a bathrobe, and he's like, hey, I'm God. If that had happened, not only would they not have followed him, they probably would have tried to execute him way sooner, <laughs> right? This idea that Jesus just shows up and says, I am God incarnate, and that they would all follow him, it's just, it doesn't make sense within the ancient world. Now, they did come to believe after Easter, they did come to believe that when you talked about Jesus, you were talking about God. Yes, of course they did. But pre-Easter Jesus would not have talked about himself in those terms. He would have been a faithful, monotheistic Jewish person, just like his surrounding friends. Number two, it became messianic. And, and by the way, Messiah, messianic, it's this word that means anointed one. It can be used and has been used in the scriptures for other people. It was used for Cyrus the Great. Uh, To be anointed is what you would do for a king. Before a king took the throne, you would anoint them with oil. You would pour it over them as a way of symbolizing their calling. But there emerged this idea, and there were different expectations. If anybody tells you that there was one expectation for the Messiah and Jesus didn't fulfill it or he did fulfill it, that's just not accurate. Remember how many Baptists are there? You put 10 people in a room, you got 15 Baptists, right? Like, this is the same. It's the same across religious, like, there's difference, there's nuance. And so there was no just monolithic idea of this is what the Messiah, who the Messiah is. But there did come to be this sense that God was going to raise someone up 
who would come and lead the people to liberation. That at this particular point in history, he would overthrow the Roman Empire and bring freedom and prosperity back to the land. That not only that, he would usher in a new age, which brings us to the third point. It was an eschatological, it sounds like a sneeze, um, an eschatological um, time, which means eschatology just means referring to the end times. And if you read the gospels, you'll find out there were lots of people John the Baptist, Jesus, who talked about the end. If you read Paul's genuine letters, Paul's talking about the end is coming. Now, what did they mean? They did not mean the end of the world. They did not mean the world is about to end and we're gonna go somewhere else. What they talked about was the end of the age, which means this particular way of doing things and the way things are being run in the world, it's about to end. That's what Jesus seems to have believed, that they were at an inflection point in history for for the Jewish people. Um, And I think for Jesus, he saw it as, we're either going to find a way to nonviolently resist and throw off Roman oppression, or we are going to violently resist and be destroyed by Rome. We are coming to a pivotal moment where we are literally, the world could end. So when you see Jesus or Paul talking about the end, and there's sort of this, well, they clearly got that wrong. Actually, they got it right. In the year 70, the end came. The temple was destroyed, the world ended, the age ended, a different time period began. So that, that's a bit, about, a bit about Second Temple Judaism. That, that's what Jesus, that's the, that's the uh, I almost said soup, but I meant sea, Jesus was swimming in. You can swim in soup if you want, but I think this is the sea Jesus is swimming in. This is the stuff that's going on in the background, in the periphery. This is what Jesus would have been interacting with and thinking about. Second context. Jesus was born and lived his entire life under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Rome took over Palestine, um, Judah, they named it Judea. They took over in the year 63 BCE. So roughly, you know, 60-ish years before the birth of Jesus, Roman General, General Pompey rode into Jerusalem and claimed this as Roman territory. Now, what you have to know is Rome was a domination system, as all empires are. Uh, Here's what Borg and Crossan say. Domination system calls attention to its central dynamic, the political and economic domination of the many by the few, and the use of religious claims to justify it. So we talk domination system. Here's what we mean. We mean political oppression by the few against the many. We mean economic exploitation, such that a very few Very few people in Jesus' day owned most of the land. And it was an agrarian society. So what what are you basing your economy on? The land, but the land is owned by a few people um, through heavy taxation, right? And it's always legitimated religiously. Well, the, the gods put us in charge. If God didn't want us to be in charge, we wouldn't be. God would put somebody else in charge. God sides with the people on top of the pyramid of power which the tradition that produced Jesus and the prophets had this really brilliant innovation in human history where they said, actually, no, we think God sides with those who are on the bottom of the power pyramid. We think that God isn't siding with those at the top of the ladder. He's siding with those that the ladder is sitting on. And so there's this Roman domination system that is, and here's how deeply embedded the Jesus story is in this. Most of the titles we Christians use for Jesus emerged from Roman imperial theology. For example, how many of you have ever heard Jesus called son of God? Wow, can't believe it's not all of us. Um, (laughs) People call him that. 
Um, and what people hear that as in our world is if you were to take Jesus on the Mari Povich show and there would be a DNA test, God would be the father, right? We have a match. Uh, that's not what son of God meant. It, could, it, it meant two things. One, it, it was a way of talking about the Jewish king. God had promised David that whoever was on the throne um, after him would be God's son and God would be the son's father. But it's also Roman. If you were to walk around in the Roman world and put a coin in your pocket, okay, how many of you have coins in your pocket? Nobody, because we don't do that anymore. But if you were, if you pulled out a coin, what would you see on the front of it? A, a, the face of a dead president, right? And you flip it over on the back, you would see symbols and you would see writing that sort of indicates what we think, right? This is, this is actually, before social media, if you wanted to get a message out in the world, you minted a coin. And so think about this, when Jesus is asked about paying taxes and he's handed a coin and he says, whose face is this? Caesar's. No, what the gospel doesn't tell us is when you look up these coins, it would have proclaimed Caesar Augustus or in Jesus' time, Caesar Tiberius, uh, when he was executed, it would have proclaimed them as the son of God. The Roman emperor was the son of God who had the right to rule the empire because he was the son of God. What might it mean for Christians or Jesus followers as they would have been at the time to come along and say, this is the son of God? There's this profound moment at the end of Mark's gospel where Jesus has just died and there's a Roman centurion standing there looking at him and he goes, this is the son of God. What claim is being made? This is the vision for the world that we should get behind. This is the kind of human who could be responsible with power. It's a pretty big claim. It's not just theological, it's political. Think about this, how many of you ever heard Jesus called Lord? Well, the, in Jesus' time, in the early Christian time, Caesar was Lord. And your life could hinge on the balance of whether or not you acknowledge Caesar as Lord. So when a group of people get together and start saying, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. It is a loaded, yes, theological, but deeply political term about how the world should be run. How many of you ever heard Jesus called Savior? Caesar was Savior. Inscriptions all over the Roman Empire talk about how, especially Caesar Augustus, he saved the world. He was the bringer of peace who saved us from destruction. When in the Gospel of Luke, when the angels announced to the shepherds, Christ the Lord has been born and he's the Savior. This is, them's fighting words in the Roman Empire. And this is the context Jesus emerged in a context of innovative spirituality that was shifting and changing, but also sharpening to say that there's something happening and we are facing a cataclysmic future if we don't figure out how to do this better, all the while being under the oppressive boot of Roman domination. So with those two contexts in mind, who was the historical Jesus? I just wanna give you a brief sketch of who I think Jesus probably was. The historical Jesus was a Jewish person from Northern Palestine who came to adulthood probably in the 20s CE. His life was lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. He seems to have been a follower of John the Baptizer, um, but after John got arrested, 
Jesus launched his own ministry. He began something else. And Jesus's ministry had some consistency with John's. Jesus' disciples practiced baptism and those sorts of things. But there also was a break from John. John's vision seemed to be like this. There's something coming and it's God's going to come back and God is going to get rid of the bad guys. Make sure you've repented. Make sure you've been ritually washed so that you are on the right side when God comes to town and starts kicking tail. All right, so for John, it is, there is an intervention coming to save us. Jesus seems to have made an innovation and said, I don't doubt that God wants to do something, but, but God is not going to do it without our participation. We, we can't sit around and wait for God to act. We have to act now consistent with how we see and understand God. That seems to be the big shift. Jesus' movement was centered on his vision of something he called the kingdom of God. Kingdom is a pretty dated term. You might call it the kingdom of God, the, the commonwealth of God, something like that. And it was a vision for how the world should be ordered. It was a vision that said, nobody ought to go hungry. All right, this moment where Jesus has been teaching and the multitudes have followed him out to the desert and his disciples like, you gotta let them go, they're hungry. And Jesus is like, just feed them. We don't send people away hungry, feed them. Feed them and they organize themselves and everybody gets enough. That This is Jesus' movement, the kingdom of God, enough for everybody. And Jesus' vision was inspired by who he thought God was. Jesus had a particular understanding of God's character that compelled him to organize his ministry in a certain way. Next week, that's what we're talking about, the character of God as understood by Jesus. And so in that way, this movement was religious. It's, it's grounded in Jesus' understanding of God. But what Jesus' world understood that we don't is that you can't divide the world up like we try to. Um, there was no such thing as religion, politics, and economics in the ancient world. There was life. And so Jesus' movement, contrary to what lots and lots of Christians want to believe, because there's this thing in Christianity where we, we want to celebrate and follow this Jesus, but we just don't want to implement any of the things he actually says about the world. We want a savior for that heavenly real estate, but we don't want somebody to mess up our checkbooks. Are you with me? And, and Jesus is pressing an agenda that would seriously conflict and did conflict with Caesar's economic policies. Um, often people have said to me, well, Jesus didn't tell Caesar how to run Rome. Well, I, I think you should read the gospels. And I, I think we should wonder why he was executed if he wasn't telling Caesar how to run Rome. They understood life can't be lived in compartments. What your religious conviction are is ultimately what your political conviction is, which is ultimately how you think the world should be ordered economically. Jesus gathered people together and began forming communities of radical compassion, inclusion, and generosity. And he enacted this kingdom vision through teaching, through eating meals. And we're gonna talk about specifically one week, the meals of Jesus. But when Jesus ate meals, it wasn't just like, hey, let's have some lunch. It was symbolic. This is what the kingdom is like. Rich and poor, enslaved and free, male, female, human, different stratos stratospheres, different strata of society. Outside of that space, not, not seen as equal, but in this space, all one, all valuable. He also enacted it through healings and exorcisms. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. I know, March 26th, mark your calendars. It's healing and exorcism Sunday. I should frame that differently. <laughs> <clears throat> March 26th, we're going to talk about healings and exorcisms. <laughs> then if you need one, we'll see what happens. But 
primarily going to look at what Jesus talked about. This movement of his began to grow and it gained traction. Sometime in the early 30s, probably, Jesus was arrested and executed by the Roman Empire for treason. After his death, some of his followers had experiences of Jesus, that Jesus was still with them, that he had been raised up by God. That's the actual language the the New Testament uses, not resurrected. It's raised up by God. We'll talk about what that means later. Um, it led them to brand new ideas and understandings. They began to say what they actually had to do is what so many of us have had to do is they had experiences that did not align with the theological lenses they had been given. And so they had to go back to their scripture and their tradition and they had to reread it. And as they did, they read it with new eyes and they saw things they had never seen before. And they began to take stories and poems and characters from the Hebrew scriptures, and they began to use them as a storyboard on which they laid the story of Jesus as a way of saying, we missed it the whole time, but this is what God is like. And so they continued his work. They continued building communities that resisted the system of dehumanization and domination the empire always is. They continued sharing their food. They continued practicing healing. They continued being this radically hospitable and inclusive community until Constantine ruined it. Can I just throw that in there (laughs) parenthetically? And so the rest of this series, I'm going to spend unpacking that, what we just went through. We're going to talk about Jesus' view of God, Jesus' understanding of the kingdom, his meals, his teaching, his healings, his exorcisms, his death, Easter, and then what happened after Easter and who Jesus is today. That's where we're headed in this series. But let's go back to C.S. Lewis. He's either Lord, liar, lunatic, or Lord. And to that, I would just say the problem is it's just way more interesting and complex than that. There is no doubt that the experience of the historical Jesus led some of the people who knew him to walk away and say, my Lord and my God. Did, of course. But what Lewis has given us is well, either we claim what we, we accept what Jesus claimed that maybe he didn't even say, or we, we, we have to walk away. I think the story of Jesus is way more compelling than that. And here's the thing, and maybe this is just me, but I bet there are some of you watching or some of you in this room this resonates with. I am not compelled by arguments or doctrines about Jesus. Anybody else? Like when somebody's like, I'm going to give you eight proofs that Jesus is. Nope. I want to engage you in a debate about who Jesus is. Not interested. Because that doesn't compel me. But the Jesus that is often presented is is a two-dimensional Jesus who has been plucked from his own time and context and put on the flannel graph of whatever era of history is talking about him and misses this rich, varied, beautiful context and culture that produced Jesus. And I think by going back into that, we see something else. I'm compelled by Jesus because of his life, because of this life beautifully lived. It it, it calls to me. I feel a a sense of invitation when I look at the life of Jesus, this life that way before he was executed on the cross, this life that was giving himself away in generosity and love and compassion, this, this life that actually cared about the most basic necessities of humanity. When he taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors, I think he was talking about literal debt. I think he actually cared about daily bread. I think this Jesus was deeply, deeply bound up in the world he lived in. And he transformed it in so many ways. It was a way of being and loving that caused those who first knew him and followed him 
to realize in hindsight that this is what God has meant all along, that this kind of life is, we, we've been searching the stars and it's right here in human form, this kind of life is what we've meant by the word God. I find it interesting that one of Jesus' own brothers eventually came around. I mean, how many of you have siblings? You're not gonna do that, right? You don't come around and say, I think, I think my sibling is the embodiment of the divine. <laughs> Maybe the embodiment of something else. Bring them exorcism week <laughs> and we'll figure it out. But this is what God has always meant. And it was in touching this life of Jesus that they realized that they were touching the divine and that Jesus helped them realize that they were doing so within their own human experience as well. That God is not some outside force that we, we, we turn all the right knobs and play things the right way and get just enough fog in the room so that God will show up and hear our prayer. That God has always been the very reality in which we've been swimming. We just haven't had eyes to see it. And what Jesus gave them is a new way of seeing. Christians all over the world today are talking about this story in the gospels called the transfiguration where Jesus and some of his disciples go up on a mountain and he's transfigured and his clothes get bleached and the voice of God said, this is my son who I love, listen to him. And it's like in that moment, if you read the story, that those few disciples who experienced this with him, their eyes begin to open in the story and they begin to see Jesus in new ways. I hope that's what happens through this series. Because to be honest with you, so many things about the Jesus that so many of us have known. Um, when I think about what I wanna take forward with me in my life, there are so many versions of Jesus I just wanna leave behind. But I wanna do that because I, I think there's a better Jesus that's calling us forward. I think there's a better Jesus a Jesus that has been lost to so many of us in the sands of time, who's been covered up with layer after layer of doctrine and dogma and creed and tradition. And that if we can somehow pull some of that back, we begin to see a human life that in the story the gospels tell, cause a soldier to say, that's actually what God is like. That cause a disciple to say on Easter evening, my Lord and my God, but somewhere there's a human life that was so compelling and transformative that nothing could ever be the same for those that knew him. Last week I ended with something John Shelby Spong had written, a Lament of a Believer in Exile. I'm gonna leave you with another. Um, this is written by a poet named Lucy Newton Boswell Negus, but it, she based it on a sermon that John Shelby Spong had given. It's called Christ Power. Look at him. Look not at his divinity, but look rather at his freedom. Look not at the exaggerated tales of his power, but look rather at his infinite capacity to give himself away. Look not at the first century mythology that surrounds him, but look rather at his courage to be, his ability to live, and his cont the contagious quality of his love. Stop your frantic search. Be still and know that this is God, this love, this freedom, this life, this being. And when you are accepted, Accept yourself. When you are forgiven, forgive yourself. And when you are loved, love yourself. 